Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, this is Abdurrahman Murphy and you are listening to our latest heartwork series called Becoming a Friend of Allah, Lessons from the Life of Prophet Ibrahim salam. If you benefit from and appreciate the work that we do here at Roots, please consider becoming a sustainer at rootsdfw.org slash sustain. Your contributions go a very long way in supporting the work that we do. And if you're ever in the Dallas area, please give us the honor of being able to host you. We'll have a cup of coffee for you at Suhbah, inshallah, and we'll be able to welcome you home in person. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome home. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah. Wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'een. Welcome everybody. Uh, just quickly, some housekeeping before we get started, inshallah. Um, so the overflow is uh, live and ready. So if you're here uh, and you don't have a spot to sit, we don't want you to be uncomfortable. So uh, you can, inshallah, head over to the multi-purpose hall. The only challenge is that you're going to have to walk around because the construction uh, for the new school year is in between us and the multi-purpose hall now. So the TVs are on, the audio is good, you'll be comfortable. Uh, if that's what you prefer, inshallah, that's available um, to you, bi'idhnillah. Uh, uh, I hope everyone, inshallah, had a wonderful weekend. Welcome back to Heartwork. Uh, as you can tell, the man in the stunning blue Kurta, mashallah. Uh, next to me, Sheikh Yasser Qadi. Alhamdulillah, has been so nice to come and visit us and to spend some time here with us, inshallah, on this Monday night. Uh, Sheikh, welcome. This is Heartwork. It's our weekly uh, session for our community, young professionals, and those young families that want to come and connect to the tradition. So we, we alternate between different topics, and we're currently on the topic called Becoming a Friend of Allah, where we talk about, of course, the the friend of Allah as, as described by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself, Ibrahim alayhi salam. Um, and before we get started, you know, we have inshallah some ayat that we're going to reflect on tonight and talk about. But before we get started, uh, I wanted to ask, um, you know, first of all, how are you? Assalamu <laughs> alaikum wa rahmatullah. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for uh, welcoming me to your safe space, alhamdulillah. I hope it's safe for me as it is safe for all of you, of inshallah. Uh, I've heard uh, lots of positive things about your coffee shop. So one day, inshallah, we'll You had the chai. You just had the chai. I had right the now. chai, which was really good. Yeah. I had the, the coffee another day, inshallah. inshallah. Uh, but alhamdulillah, I'm doing fine. Life is good. Life is busy. Alhamdulillah. And I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to keep all of our iman strong Ameen. and to give barakah in our time Ameen. and to allow us to live productive lives so that when we leave, Inshallah, we leave with a very positive legacy for the people that we are leave behind, and we take that that legacy forward for Akhir, Inshallah. I mean, I mean, Ya Rab. Uh, I, I wanted to, you know, I've known Sheikh Yasser now for almost probably 20 years. Uh, the first uh, time that I that I met Sheikh Yasser was in Chicago. So I was born and raised in Chicago, as you guys know, the fourth holiest city in the world, uh, Chicago Sharif. Uh, I don't think there's much ikhtilaf on this uh, statement, but. Uh, I met Sheikh Yasser a long, long time ago, and it, it, um, it goes, you know, without saying, but I'll say it, which is that Sheikh Yasser used to be at that time, right, 20 years ago, uh, kind of like one of the more young, up-and-coming teachers, right, had arrived back from Medina and was teaching classes on the weekends with the Maghrib Institute, and now Sheikh, mashallah, Yasser has, you know, basically evolved and grown into what I would consider now to be one of the elder scholars in America, in the world really, but in America for us, who are just students and teachers, 
and quite literally the space that you're sitting in roots uh, quite literally would not be possible without the work that Sheikh Yasser did for those of us who were sitting in his classroom in the uh, Westin Hotel in Chicago learning Light of Guidance. 2004. 2004, 2004 yeah. subhanAllah. So I have to thank you. And you know everyone who's benefiting from Roots has to know that there are many people on that journey that sort of molded Roots into what it's become. Um, many of you guys hear me say a lot that the connection that we have from places like this is community, but community is built through knowledge. And that's something that amongst all my teachers, Sheikh Yasser was one of them who made a huge impression on that. With life without knowledge is no life worth living. And so uh, that's why it's such an amazing feeling to have him here, alhamdulillah. Um, and we wanted to continue where we left off last week. So we're doing the series of Prophet Ibrahim, Abraham, peace be upon him, and we're going chronologically uh, through the Qur'an. Now the name Khalilullah, Shaykh Yasser, before we get started with the Qur'anic portion, what, 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 what was it about Ibrahim salam, from your knowledge and your survey of his life that made him so unique and distinct to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give him that title? Jayid. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man walahama ba'd. The Prophet Ibrahim alayhi salam is the only Prophet in the entire Quran that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commands our Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam to take as a role model. The only Prophet, the only, that is explicitly said, of course, generically, every story of every Prophet is meant to be lessons for us and even for the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. But to specifically say that لَقَدْ كَانَ لَكُمْ أُسْوَةٌ حَسَنَةٌ You have a good uswa, a good role model في Ibrahim, in Ibrahim. That only happens to one Prophet and that is the Prophet Ibrahim salam. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling all of us that there's something about this man that is so amazing that even the greatest man on earth, whoever walked the face of this earth, even he is told, take him as a mentor and role model. And by the way, this shows you, no matter how great you are, human beings, they need mentorship. Mm. Even the greatest, you just need people to encourage. To, and of course, the Prophet is the greatest human being. But in his modesty, in his humility, when somebody came to the Prophet and said, Ya khayr al-bariya, O best of all mankind, he himself said, no, no, that's my father Ibrahim alayhi mm. Even though he is the best of mankind, right? But the one who is the best should not view himself as being the best. Let others acknowledge him. We acknowledge. But when he was said the best of mankind, he does not believe himself to be the best. And that shows he is the best. Like to, to ascribe piety to yourself is not a part of taqwa. So you, the question you asked me is what makes Ibrahim special? Frankly, much more than can be summarized in a few uh, uh, points in this. But Allah Azza wa Jal mentions that inna Ibrahim kana ummatan qanita lillah. Right? Mm. This is a powerful verse. Ibrahim is an ummah. Ummah has multiple meanings. One of them, you all know what ummah means. Ummah means a nation. And it's really powerful that Allah uses ummah for Ibrahim alayhi salam despite the fact that unlike many of his progeny, unlike Musa and Isa and the Prophet who have massive ummas, Ibrahim did not have an ummah in his lifetime. Mm. Understand this point. Ibrahim salam did not have a massive following in his lifetime. And yet Allah calls him an ummah. You don't need a physical ummah to make the impact of an ummah. You don't need thousands of people around you to make the impact of, in fact, more than a thousand, more than a few thousand. 
Ibrahim السلام, is universally acknowledged as the greatest and the most respected human being on the face of this earth in terms of quantity. In terms of quality, our process, yes. But quantity-wise, again, Jews, Christians, Muslims are more than 50% of this earth. Jews, Christians, and Muslims put together, they are the Abrahamic faiths. And all of them love and respect Ibrahim السلام. Not all of them love Moses the way they love Ibrahim. Not all of them love Jesus. Not all of them love our Prophet Of course, quality-wise, we do. But quantity-wise, it is Ibrahim السلام. So Allah Azza wa Jal is indicating that your legacy is not based upon the quantity of your followers. You can be a one-man ummah as Ibrahim السلام, was. And of course, so many other things can be derived. I mean, again, why is Ibrahim such a role model? Allah Azza wa Jal mentions, Recall and know that Allah tested Ibrahim with many commandments and he perfected all of them. Once he perfects them, what does Allah say? Once you fulfill the commandments of Allah, your maqam, your status rises up. And he perfected the commandments to such a level that Allah Azza wa Jal says, as soon as he finishes all the tests, I'm going to make you an imam for all of mankind. So how does one gain legacy and respect? How does one gain impact? It is by strengthening your relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. When you strengthen your relationship with Allah Azza wa Jal, automatically your impact on other people, automatically the quality of your life changes. You become a person whose charisma, whose character, you don't have to have the sharpest tongue. You don't have to have, you know, the, the greatest wit. Your akhlaq is going to speak volumes more than anything else. And this is what we learn of the many things of Ibrahim salam. So to summarize, Ibrahim is a role model like no other prophet is a role model. And again, there's no comparison like putting up and down. Point is though, in some aspects, Ibrahim salam is unique. In some aspects, he's totally unique. And in many aspects, our process is unique. We're not in the business of competition. But we do recognize uniqueness. Mm. And Ibrahim السلام, has plenty that is unique. And the most important thing is his sincerity and his humility and his love and compassion for all of mankind. I mean, I don't know if you guys have done this story yet or not. I don't know your chronology yet. but We haven't. You haven't done we that We just yet. started last week. Okay, so you're going to learn. Very important, and it's a really interesting, maybe later on we'll go into this tangent here, but the people of Lut السلام, right? Lut wanted his people off the face of this earth. When the, and Allah answered that dua. Ibrahim السلام, begins arguing, give them another chance. And Allah calls Ibrahim compassionate and merciful, mm. right? But then Allah says, look, I have said it, so now you shouldn't intervene. There's an adab with Allah. If anybody else, okay. But with Allah Azza wa Jal, you can't negotiate this matter. So that's a different story. Point is though, Allah praised the compassion and then said, but it shouldn't cause you to negotiate with me. But the compassion is praiseworthy, right? Inna Ibrahim al-awwahun halim, right? He's halim. Halim is like just full of forgiveness. So Ibrahim, yujadiluna fi qawmi lut. He was arguing with the angels. How was he arguing? Come on, give them another chance. You know, don't do it now. Just stall it for a little bit more. And Allah Azza wa Jal mentions, he did this because his heart was full of a softness. 
right? And this is a really deep point. Maybe later on we can get into this. But this is a praiseworthy aspect for Ibrahim alayhi salam. The fact that his heart was so much full of love for all of mankind, even those that were disobeying Allah, even those that were going to be punished. Okay, the punishment is there, but your heart doesn't have to have hatred. Mm. Somebody's doing something wrong. You know, there should be some, some compassion as well. That you want to have them guided, give them other, another chance. So all of this we learned from the story of Ibrahim salam and much more than this. Subhanallah. It reminds me of the, the, the point in the seerah where the Prophet ﷺ, like after battles when some of the Muslims would be celebrating, he would, be, he, would, he would generally be in a somber state realizing that those people who had died in opposition, right, and in, in literally in a, in a state of warring against the Muslims, that it wasn't ultimately going to be for their benefit. And the Prophet ﷺ had that compassion. This is one of those amazing things that you see even spiritually, that lineage. We know that the Prophet ﷺ, of course, is physically and, and from a, uh, a family point related to the Prophet Ibrahim ﷺ, but even spiritually he took that. You know, Shaykh, we, last week we talked about this point, and essentially we made this and we left it as, as our one point from last week. Ibrahim had to stand up in a moment of principle, uh, the Qur'an says to his father, Azar, and he asked this very difficult question. And, and we all know we've had difficult conversations with our parents, right? I was going to actually even ask you, um, what is it like having not gone to med school? <laughs> I mean, you're a doctor, but kind of, right? Thank you so like, much like, for like, bringing like, that do, up. Like, do you, help, do you help people on planes, or are you not that kind of doctor? <laughs> you're bringing up the memes here, huh? <laughs> I kid you not. Seriously, one time my mom introduced me to somebody... <laughs> And literally, no exaggeration, you know, she said, uh, you guys speak Urdu, some of you, I'll say it in Urdu, right? Your doctor is like an asli doctor. He's a doctor, but he's not the real doctor. Don't get confused. He's yeah. not the, the fake, the PhD doctor. It's like... So, uh, <laughs> so tension with parents, right, on a spectrum I'm goes from that. he's a doctor, but not a real doctor, to what the Qur'an mentions about Ibrahim and we just finished, I know that this is one of your favorite chapters, I wish we could have gotten you for that, was the story of Sayyidina Yusuf yeah. with, with, with Ya'qub. And so we started last week saying, look, the Qur'an has a, a, a plurality of experiences, right? You have Yusuf and Ya'qub, Joseph and Jacob, mm -hmm. great father-son relationship. But there are many in this room that read that story and they can't help but feel a void. How does the Qur'an giving us this relationship now, right? Because in, in reality, you would say, well, shouldn't all prophets have perfect relationships in their home? Shouldn't they be able to live a perfect family life? And sometimes we feel guilty as Muslims knowing that we want to follow what the Prophet ﷺ came with, but we do have tensions in our home. What's the wisdom in the Qur'anic guidance on sharing a story of a prophet who struggled with his own father? So we don't get to choose our families. Allah chooses and every one of us has to deal with different types of family situations and dramas. Now, when you're young, you think only your family's messed up. Everybody else's family is picture perfect. I can assure you, every single family has its ups and downs. I'm not saying everybody's equal. Definitely some have different and more difficult problems than others, but every single family has its issues and relationships. This is the reality of life. And we need to understand that that's really one of the purposes of life, to be tested in different ways. So family, collectively, is a test. Wealth is a test. Free time is a test. Every blessing Allah has given us is also a test, and every test is a potential blessing. That's the reality of life. 
Nobody has a perfect life. The perfect life, that's in the akhirah. That's in the next life. That's the whole point here, right? In fact, what do we learn? Again, all of these are collected, collected points here. What do we learn about grief and stress? What do we learn about anxiety? The first phrase that will come from the people of Jannah when they enter Jannah. Like when you enter Jannah, right? The Quran tells us in Surah Fatir, what are you gonna say when you enter Jannah? It's not, oh my God, look at all the furniture. Oh my God, look at my mansions. Oh my God. What is the first thing you're gonna say when you enter Jannah? وَقَالُوا الْحَمْدُ لِلَّهِ الَّذِي أَذْهَبَ عَنَّا الْحَزَنِ Wow. Alhamdulillah. Finally, nothing to worry about. I want you to think about that phrase. When does grief actually stop? Not when you leave your parents' house. A lot of you at, at this stage think, as soon as I get out, I'm going to live a happy life. SubhanAllah. Sorry to break it to you. Life is just beginning when you leave the nest. Mm. Sorry to break it to you, but you're going to have, no matter how difficult the situation, by and large, Allah knows each one, but generally speaking, your biggest battles are still ahead of you. I'm sorry, I'm, somebody's got to tell you this like an older brother. Your biggest battles are ahead of you. And sometimes those battles are, you know, again, those who are parents know this. The day that, and Allah protect all of you, your son or daughter's mm -hmm. fallen sick, you're driving to the emergency room, that battle, just wait till that happens. And everything before that is going to be a, a walk in the park. The battle of an emergency room, a 911 call, and we all know this yeah, as parents, you yeah. know. That battle... SubhanAllah. And may Allah protect all of us and our children and whatnot, but you don't know the meaning of, of those types of battles if you just have a shouting match with your mom and dad. And I'm not trying to trivialize, I'm sure some are really bad and whatnot, but I'm saying there are many battles ahead in life, right? And there is never going to be a point in your life where everything is going to be checking all the boxes. That's not what this life is for. What you're thinking of is Jannah. And if you want Jannah, the way to get Jannah is by battling one anxiety after another, overcoming one stress after another, dealing with one grief in the proper manner after another. And you keep on doing that and keep on doing that and keep on doing that until finally there is no more grief and you're entering Jannah. That's what you do. So family is going to be one of the greatest causes of fitna. Mm -hmm. If it's not your parents, without a doubt marriage, even good marriages, requires a lot of hard work. Everybody know those, those, those of you that are married, you know this, right? Those of you that aren't, somebody's got to tell you like an older brother, stop daydreaming about these romantic Hollywood or Bollywood movies that they lived happily ever after. That's why the myth finishes they lived happily ever after. The story finishes at the wedding because nobody wants 10 years down the line, right? Nobody wants the, you know, postpartum, whatever. They don't want that reality. I just want to right? clarify, we have happy marriages, alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. <laughs> this is not like a therapy session where Sheikh Yasser is just letting loose, like, wait and see. No, no. But I think what you're saying, Sheikh, is there's realism. There's, re there's a reality. Alhamdulillah. alhamdulillah. I'm actually, today is what day? What's the date today? Today is August 14th, Sheikh. I'm celebrating my 27th anniversary wow. tomorrow. We just came back from Switzerland. Uh, 10 day vacation, alhamdulillah, uh, 10 days ago. By the way, Switzerland, mashallah, two thumbs up. Just yeah. mashallah, just, pa mashallah. just pack your ramen okay. from America, though. <laughs> but it's true, too, yeah. as well. That's true, too. So expensive. <laughs> so, alhamdulillah, no, in all honesty, alhamdulillah, great marriages that way. Thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Wallahi, I would not be here if Allah hadn't blessed me with my better half. No question about that. But I'm trying to explain, sure. I'm trying to be an older brother to some of you here. To, because if you don't understand the reality of marriage, if you don't understand that marriage is really going to be one of the most difficult emotional realities, even if, inshallah, it's also one of the biggest pleasures, sure. right? The point is, 
the ups have to be much more than the downs. Mm. That's the goal, right? But somebody's got to tell you there's going to be downs. Somebody has to just lay out the facts for you that some of your most painful experiences in life are going to be marital disputes. And we learn this from the seerah. I mean, come on, what more do you want? Yeah, Our true. Prophet wasallam, for one month, he was sleeping in the masjid. That's when the famous incident happened when Umar ibn Khattab saw the, the, the marks on his back. Why was he in the masjid? Because of marital issues. Because of back and forth. And he's like, I just can't deal with this. I'm going to go sleep in the masjid. For one month he was in the masjid. And Allah revealed Quran. And I have a, five lectures on this in the seerah if you want to listen to that. My point is, why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala even to the Prophet demonstrate this reality? Mm -hmm. Because he's the role model for us. Yeah, and, this, and we mentioned this last week. We said... The Quran doesn't have all the historical details and the numbers that you might find in other religious texts because ultimately the purpose of the, of the book is guidance. And, and the reason why you have these ups and downs being memorialized and contained and preserved is because we all need these in order for us to be guided. Imagine if the Quran was just filled with stories of prophets that had really beautiful and very There would be no role model. There There'd would be, be no mentorship. And what do you need more, Sheikh, than when a time when you're down than the Quran? Mm -hmm. You need to look at the story of Ibrahim. I mean, if you have an argument with your parents or a situation with your relatives and you look at the story of Yusuf, I mean, even with his father, it was good, but with his brothers, it wasn't. Mm -hmm. Right? And then you look at with, with, with uh, Nuh, alayhi salam, his son... Right? There was difficulty. If you look at every prophet, there was some sort of familial relationship that had some tension, some issue. Why? doesn't matter who's reading the book. You're going to find yourself in one of their shoes, in one of their situations. Jazakumullah khairan, Shaykh. You know, the next ayah, when he has that tough conversation, Allah Ta'ala says that he granted him something called al-malakut, and he allowed him to be able. وَكَذَلِكَ نُورِ إِبْرَاهِيمَ مَلَكُوتَ السَّمَوَاتُ وَالْأَرْضِ that he gave him the access to the kingdoms of the heaven and the earth so that he could be from amongst the muqineen, those who have yaqeen. In one of the tafsirs, very beautifully it mentioned that the, the mulk is whatever you can see in this world. مَا ظَهَرَ فِي عَالَمَ الشَّهَادَ مِنَ الْمَحْسُوسَاتِ وَالْمَلَكُوتِ مَا غَابَ فِيهَا مِنْ مَعَانِ إِسْرَارِ الْرُبُوبِيَّةِ That it's the ability, whatever you see in this world, there's one meaning, but then what Allah gave Ibrahim, this malakut, was the ability to see something beyond that, something deeper than that. All of us, Shaykh, live pretty mundane lives. I mean, we, we have our jobs and our families and our situations and our studies and our coffee and our social lives. How can we transform our hearts to be able to see Allah in every moment? Is there a process or is this just only reserved for prophets? So this ayah actually is really powerful and this story is very powerful because this is the beginning of Ibrahim's spiritual awakening, right? And what is key to note here, at this stage, he's not a prophet. Mm. At this stage, Jibreel has not come down and communicated with him. So this entire narrative of him challenging his people, of him destroying the idol, of him telling him, look at the sun, the moon, the stars, he's not yet a prophet. And of course, this is a really deep you know, philosophical conversation, which maybe another time I, I have papers on this, academic papers on this that I presented as well. We're not going to go there, but the reality of truth and how could Ibrahim know such certain truth without any revelation? How did he know monotheism? How did he know to debate about this? And he doesn't even, he hasn't communicated with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? And that's a really deep question because here is a very important point, by the way. As you read this story, a lot of times people misunderstand that Ibrahim actually thought the sun is his god and the, the moon is his god. A'udhu billah. No. A'udhu billah. That's like paganism, right? Ibrahim alayhi salam was not 
you know, saying, oh, this is my God, this is my God, this is my God. Because Allah negates seven times in the Quran, he was never a pagan. Seven times Allah says, Hanifan Muslima. He was always a Muslim, right? He never committed shirk. So this notion of him saying the sun, the moon, the, the stars, this is an argumentation technique. He knows Allah is his Lord, but his people worship the stars. His people worship the celestial objects. So he's employing argumentation technique. The same way he destroys the idols, and then he goes, oh, the big one did it. I mean, he knows the big one didn't do it, right? The big one did it because he wants to show them the incapability of the idols to even you know, defend themselves, right? So the question here then, where and how is this bravery coming forth? And of course, this is why Ibrahim is a role model, because at this stage, he's me and you, he's not a prophet. At this stage, Jibreel has not communicated with him. Ironically, Jibreel will communicate with him when? When he's thrown into the fire. This is so like metaphysical, like spiritual, profound. He walks into the fire a human, he's thrown into the fire a normal human, and he's saved as a prophet. Like quite literally, that's when Allah Azza blesses him with prophethood. Not that, of course, we should follow that particular sunnah, obviously. <laughs> but metaphorically, metaphorically. After the event, by the way, we're going to have it. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> Symbolically, when yeah. will you be your most powerful? SubhanAllah. Symbolically, when are, you gonna, when are you really going to get that blessing and boost from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? When you quite literally put your trust in Allah and you do the right thing. Simple as that. I mean, Ibrahim's story shows that, right? And again, at this stage, by the way, how old is Ibrahim? Probably 14, 15 years old. He's not 40, 50. I mean, he's a teenager, right? Because again, in the other surah, they said, there was this young kid talking about the idols. They say his name is Ibrahim. Fata, young kid, 16, 17 years old, right? He's just a child or a teenager. And yet the courage that he has, the conviction, how do you get that level of conviction and the bravery? At that stage, there was no Muslim on earth. Think about that. And that's why when he fled with Sarah to Egypt, what did he say to Sarah? He said, there is nobody that is worshiping Allah except me and you right now. Nobody. So this story takes place and there is no Sarah in the picture. He's not married. So therefore, at this stage, he is literally standing up against all of mankind to preach the truth. Now, here's the really awkward question. People don't really worship idols in our times. Mm. But what are the equivalents in our times of false truths that mankind has accepted? I was going to ask this, so thank you. No, I was going to say, the reality is yeah, that yeah, no, we don't have the, you know, I always tell people that the, the closest thing you can think of is that horse in front of P.F. Chang's. We don't have those Interesting, anymore. okay. Yeah. <laughs> I have a six-year-old. I have to be creative. So <laughs> okay. the reality is that we don't, we're not going to see people prostrating and devoting themselves in the common you know, public to things like that. But does that mean that we're safe from shirk? Obviously not. Paganism has taken different forms. Paganism has taken different forms. We no longer, by and large, Western society in particular, obviously, you go to the Far East and you, know, you see this, you see it all, all the time. But the types of paganism we have now are intellectual paganism. Frankly, at some level, the paganisms we have are even more kufri than the paganisms of the past. To reject God and the existence of God is a worse form of paganism than worshiping multiple gods. Think about that. 
to reject God in totality, atheism, right, is a worse form of arrogance and kufr than the paganism of the past where you actually believed in one almighty God and then lots of mini-gods underneath, right? So we have multiple manifestations of rejections of God outright or rejections of Allah's authority over us. And so the notion that ethics and values and laws is not something that I need to take from a higher power, that is a type of paganism. Literally, it's a type because one of the names of Allah is Al-Hakim, the one who's the lawgiver. And when you reject Allah as the law, our ethics, our values, we are not qualified to dictate our own values. It is Allah who's going to tell us right from wrong. Sure, we're given a moral compass, right? But what do you do when your compass is corrupt? Who's going to correct the internal compass? Mm -hmm. You need the Quran to verify your internal compass is pointing the right direction. You understand my point here, right? The Quran, yeah. I love when Allah says, That if you were the ones that had to decide and the Prophet ﷺ was the one following you, like imagine switching places. Instead of him being the one who gives us ethical code and laws, you're the one that gets to decide. Allah actually says you would hate it. And how many times have you made a decision, like an ethical decision, a moral decision, and then almost immediately or very shortly after you regretted it, right? The reality is that our own evidence of our incapability is almost daily. And so this idea is not just spiritual, it's also quite logical, right? If you want to understand the importance of having Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in a moral position in your life, just look at your own mistakes that you've made and realize that whenever you align yourself with Allah, and that's why we ask Allah to align our hearts with what He loves. Because just because your heart loves it doesn't mean it's okay. doesn't mean it's good, right? I love chocolate cake, especially after, you know, the kids go to sleep. I love calories late at night, right? But it's clearly not doing well for me. Right? Alhamdulillah. You don't stop nodding. People are nodding. <laughs> that was not like an agreement thing, right? That was a rhetorical thing. The point being is that we make decisions all the time and we end up regretting them almost immediately. But if a person aligns their heart with what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loves, it might be difficult. It may not be easy, but it will always be free from regret. We ask Allah ta'ala And to the grant Quran is actually a beautiful verse um, in Surah Al A'raf. Um, memorize this verse. If truth were subjugated to their desires, whims, yeah. if truth followed their desires, truth is above the desires of a group of people, right? We do not vote for morality. Morality and ethics transcends a majority vote. We need to understand this point here. Just because a group of people decide something is right or wrong doesn't make it right or wrong. That's their decision. And Allah says in the Quran, If truth were subjugated to their whims and desires, Everything in the heavens and earth would become corrupt. Truth is above the desires of a group of people. And because of this, we need a higher source of guidance. That's where the Quran and the life of the Prophet come into play. One last question, Sheikh, and then we want to open it up to Q&A. In in the, there's a passage in Surah Al-Anbiya, and we're going to do more of this, inshallah, next week and the following weeks. But there's something that you mentioned when they, Ibrahim salam goes through this process of trying to demonstrate to these people that have had all of their faculties sealed, meaning that their logical conversations are not working. Him trying to rhetorically engage with them is not working. So he engages in this, this practice, which he hopes, this demonstration of sorts, this protest, where he hopes that it will, it will you know, crack, no pun intended, this seal that's around them to show them 
their own flaws. And that plan that he has is that they have all these inanimate objects that they fashioned, they created, and then they themselves devote themselves to in worship. So while they are gone one day, Ibrahim السلام, in the Quran memorializes this moment, he destroys all of the idols except for one, except for the biggest one. And then he takes the weapon that, of destruction and places it in the hands or in the uh, lap or the possession of the one that is the biggest one. So there's only one idol left and it has the, the axe or the, 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 the club or whatever it may have been. And when they come back, these people are furious because they see all of these deities that they worship, these, these stones that they pray to, they're all destroyed. And they say, as Sheikh Yasser mentioned, that they describe him, that we heard about this guy, this young man, Ibrahim, that he was speaking about doing this plan, about doing this thing. So let's go ahead and interrogate him. Let's go and indict him. And they go and they ask Ibrahim, and they wanted to sort of make this this big inquisition, this trial that they were going to try to find him guilty in front of everybody. They asked him, was it you who did this to our gods, Ibrahim? And Ibrahim responds and he says, no, why don't you ask the biggest one? He's the one that has the weapon in his hand. Ask him if they're those who can talk. There's a verb here that I think is very interesting. They, it's, they turned into themselves. They retreated inward. And they started to have this almost internal dialogue, whether it was individually or whether it was as a collective. And they said to each other that we know that we're wrong. We know that we're wrong. So there's a point here, Sheikh, that I want us to think about and finish on, which is every single one of us in this room can identify with that ayah probably. Raise, no, don't raise your hand, but think to yourself, if you've ever thought in a moment as something's happening or going on and you're standing on clearly the opposite side of what's correct and you have that deep introspective thought where you say, you know what, this is not right. What I said, what I did, what I, what, this is incorrect. Sheikh, how do we take ourselves from that moment and not become those people who then go back on what they know to be correct and keep charging down the path of deviance or the path of a wrongdoing? How do we humbly own up to our mistakes and come out of that trance of desire or whatever it may be and fix ourselves to get back on the straight path? Excellent question and point. And just quickly before I answer that. So remember, the story is taking place before Ibrahim السلام, becomes a prophet. He's mm. doing this as a regular Muslim, quote unquote, right? And so this type of technique, he literally said the big one did it. Technically, the big one didn't do it, right? And that's why in the hadith in Sahih Bukhari, you know, uh, on the day of judgment, when people go to Ibrahim and say, you make shafa, you make shafa, he's going to say, no, I said a lie and I feel so guilty about it. Or I said three lies. And he's going to mention this little trivial thing here. And his guilt is so much, I said something I shouldn't have said, right? But he did this when he wasn't a prophet. So it's an interesting, interesting point here that this little tactic, even though you're trying to prove a bigger point, it caused him to feel a lot of guilt later on. But he's excused because he wasn't even a prophet. He's a teenager trying to, to, to draw the point home. But your question here is really pertinent. And that is, well, another point to be mentioned. Again, so much, so much profundity in these verses. Actually, I think a, a, a very important point that needs to be mentioned. The dangers of having wrong group of friends. Mm. Because Allah mentions that when Ibrahim spoke the truth, many of them understood and realized it. Then, mm. then after a bit of conversation, they're like, no, no, he's wrong, right? 
And how many times has that happened that somebody brings up, you know, the sensible or the right thing, and for a while the group's like, okay, that, but then one or two or three or four voices come and drown out that good. The same thing happens at the death of Abu Talib as well, right? He was so close, he was going to. He was going to. And then Abu Jahl comes in at the end and changes everything, right? So you have to be careful that you're around the right group of people. Because you might have the potential to be much better and your friends that you have chosen are holding you back. And in the end of the day, you chose them. Nobody's forcing you to hang around that wrong crowd, right? And this ayah is another indication because Allah mentions many of them, their conscience came out. They're like, you know these idols aren't gods. You know this. I mean, come on, he's, he's spoken the truth. But then what's going to happen when you allow, you know, the people with wrong personalities, wrong ideas to take charge? Therefore, one of the techniques and tactics of overcoming such negativity is to make sure your group of associates and friends have good hearts. They want the truth. If you're going to surround yourself with people of good, you will find goodness. And if you're going to surround yourself with people of evil, then what do you expect is going to happen? So this ayah is teaching us, as our Prophet said, ask your heart, istafti qalbak. Ask your heart. Because your heart, if a pure heart we're talking about, especially when you feel a twinge of guilt, right? By the way, the absence of guilt doesn't mean the action is halal. <laughs> don't flip the script here, okay? <laughs> oh, man. If you don't feel guilty, then, then that's a problem. But generally speaking, generally speaking, again, to, not every aspect of fiqh, but the moral issues of life, the moral issues of life, right? We're not talking about the technicalities of fiqh if you don't know and whatnot, then ask the, the shaykh and, and they'll get the fatwa. But how you treat somebody, if you feel guilty for how you treated somebody, chances are like nine times out of 10 or 99 times out of 100 that you did something wrong. Because Allah gifted us, this is a very profound point, Allah gifted us with something called a conscience. Can you imagine if we didn't have a conscience? Can you imagine if we didn't have that pinch of guilt? Of course, the technical term is fitra. The fitra is conscience. I taught you the fitra 20 years ago. Good. And, and, well, and technically, the, Allah gave it to me, but yeah. <laughs> I, I taught you about the fitra. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Elaborated on it. You attended the Ilm Summit when you did a fitra, right? I did. Yeah, yeah, okay. So we went into a lot of detail. Yeah. I, Funny story I, I got to tell you about Friday morning in the Ilm Summit. But anyways, okay. I got some visitors. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Sir. Yeah, remember yeah. That. Okay, yeah, that's a whole different thing. Okay. Uh, we had a really technical advanced class about the fitra. While I was doing my PhD, I have um, an entire chapter about the fitra. While I was doing it, I was teaching a class, uh, advanced class for Maghrib seminar. So mm. we went over that, uh, that, uh, that chapter over there. But my point being, think about the blessings that Allah has given us by giving us a conscience. Can you imagine if we didn't have a conscience? That moral compass, right? It's a gift from Allah. And that moral compass exists in every human being, by the way. That's why even the non-Muslim, right, who doesn't believe in Allah, if he or she does something unethical, immoral, there's something in their conscience pinching them, right? Why? Because Allah wants to give you an internal compass. That internal compass, it is meant to guide you due north, which is hidayah. It's meant to keep on telling you you're off the path, right? It's going to keep on gnawing at you. And we firmly believe that only... By following Islam, will your conscience be absolutely clean and pure? By following the guidance of Allah, by having a connection with Allah, 
your conscience is going to be pure. You're going to find sakina. That is the ultimate peace. The ultimate peace when your soul is at rest, when you feel nobility, when you feel productive, when you feel good about life, you're only going to feel good about life when you're living the life worth living. And you'll only live the life worth living when you've turned to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and had that connection with Him. So we learned this all from the story of Ibrahim alayhi salam. We have some questions here, Shaykh. I want to go through. So if you want to ask questions, feel free to scan the QR code and send them in. Um, we have a question here from, I think, a brother or sister who's Kurdish because the question is, is Prophet Ibrahim Kurdish? <laughs> because we know he was from North Iraq. The ethnicity known as Kurdishness came way after Ibrahim alayhi salam. You're not answering the question. So how can you back project? <laughs> so when I was in Saudi Arabia, right, uh, a journalist, <laughs> listen, listen to this, a journalist said that, this is when I was there, a student in Medina, I was there for 10 years, right? So I, a lot of things happened in my lifetime uh, during that phase. A journalist, not a scholar, not a, just like a, you know, Sahafi like that. Yeah. He, he said, why should we not be proud to be Saudis? Then he said, the uh -oh. Prophet was a Saudi. When he said this, it caused a huge controversy. I'm not the only one that caused a controversy. I know. It caused a huge controversy. Like, can you call the Prophet Saudi? And of course, the scholars came hard down. It's like, no, you can't do that. That's like a, an identity that has come. 60 years ago, you're going to back project a tribal identity that didn't exist. A family name, right? literally. A family name. Yeah. And say, so you can't do that because he, he's looking at his nation. Na nation so of state, course, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. He's like, and so the scholar said, you can't do that. So we have to avoid back projecting these types of identities onto the process was Qurashi, no problem. Yes, he was Arab, no problem. He was Hashimi, no problem. Because those are his identities. Things that happen after, you can't back project on. So that is the technical answer. It is. It is, subhanAllah. I wonder if that guy had a bunch of shirts, my prophet is Saudi. He's getting ready to start a business, trying to set that up. Um, there's a question here that I think is interesting, Sheikh, because uh, when, when, when Ibrahim asks these, uh, these people, you know, why are you worshiping these, these idols? They said, we found our fathers doing this, right? Uh, that this is something that we've inherited culturally. So someone asks, you know, can we talk about Ibrahim disagreeing with his father as it relates to the culture? versus what was truly Islam, i.e. if a Muslim parent chooses to follow cultural norms over Islam, how, how does an average person engage with filtering this stuff? That is a much deeper question than we have time to answer. What advice would you give to somebody that's, that's in yeah, that environment? You have to separate culture that is anti-Islam from culture that is neutral, from culture that is pro-Islam. There's an entire spectrum of cultures here. And in order to answer that question, you're going to have to know Islamic law and Islamic adab and Islamic norms. You cannot answer that question without knowing what Islam says. Some aspects of culture are anti-Islam, explicitly anti-Islam, right? Aspects of jahiliyyah, boasting about your culture, you know? Uh, other aspects I don't want to mention too explicitly. Most of culture is neutral, i.e. neither is it for nor anti, it's just there. And if it is neutral, then Islam does not prohibit it. And Islam obligates respecting one's elders. So if the culture is neutral, and you, in trying to tell your parents, I don't need to do it, are showing disrespect to your parents, you're falling into an, another haram, even though the culture might be neutral, if you understand what I'm saying here, right? And then there's culture that is actually pro-Islamic, 
even though it not, might not be explicit. For example, how we show respect to our elders, okay? How we show respect to our elders. Now again, um, culturally speaking, at least in uh, Indian Pakistani Bengali cultures, uh, and I, I speak only because I'm from that culture, when we sit in front of our parents, we don't sit with our feet pointing them, okay? We all know this, okay? If you do, you're gonna get smacked like, you know, when you're a kid, that's the, or maybe even as an adult, that's the reality, okay? I remember, back in the days of my different phase, right? Mm. Somebody would say, what's the dalil for this? There's no dalil if I sit like this and in front of my mother, what's the big deal, right? He's wanting the explicit dalil. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Don't put your feet on in front of your mother. Like, yeah. you know, the dalil actually is quite Quranic. It's literally in the Quran. When Allah gives the metaphor, lower your wings of humility in front of them. Literally, Allah is saying, put yourself in a humble position when you speak to your parents, right? And so, in our culture, that is manifested by not putting your feet in front of the parents. So if some, you know, technical, you know, hardcore fundamentalist, goes, what's the dalil for this? We say, this is a culture that is pro-Islam. Yeah. You don't need an explicit ayah, and you have no right to come and say, the Quran doesn't say, I don't have to put my feet in front of my parents. You understand my point here? Mm -hmm. I'm actually purposely giving generic examples because there's a lot more controversial stuff. I don't want to go there, because not because I don't go there in other places. You want to go the there. Time. <laughs> you not, love going not, there. Not, not right now. You live there, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Out beyond the boundaries yeah. of the degree. That's where you'll find me. You're Mulkim there. You don't combine prayers when you're there. That's where you're at. Allah and Mustan. What I want to say this, though, very clearly, brothers and sisters, be careful. Be careful mm. and learn before you pronounce judgments and verdicts. Mm. Ask the people of ilm and knowledge and be open-minded and don't be arrogant. Because there are aspects of our cultures that might not be enshrined in the Quran and Sunnah, but they are positive and conducive. And for you to come along after having attended five, 10 halaqat thinking you know better, you're actually probably gonna cause more damage in the long run than good. So be careful in this regard. And don't assume everything that you disagree with is like Ibrahim and idolatry and the father. No, it's not, not uh, everything in your culture is idolatry. This was clear right? cut. This was clear cut. This, this is issue. clear cut. Yeah. Clear cut. Adam. Yeah. Can I? There's one thing that you shared, you know, uh, publicly before, and I heard it, and I really, I loved it. And it was basically you said that the more that I learned, the more humble I became, or the more that Allah humbled me, right? And uh, can you elaborate a little bit on how dangerous a little bit of knowledge can be? Our scholars say a little bit of knowledge is a very dangerous thing, because when you don't study the entire spectrum, when you're taught one position, one narrative, one opinion and you're not even aware that there's a spectrum or that that opinion might have exceptions, then you automatically assume anybody who disagrees with that little interpretation that I was taught, he's somebody who's wrong, misguided, you know, destructive to Islam. And the biggest example that we need to learn over and over again is that of the first schism that happened in Islam, the Kharijites. They thought themselves more pious than the companions of the Prophet and in their piety, they began murdering. This is ISIS mentality, literally. In their piety, they began killing people that they thought were not as good as them, right? And this is the slippery stepping stone to fundamentalism, to fanaticism. Be very, very careful. When you haven't studied Islam, follow the mainstream scholars. I keep on saying to the people that don't follow the voices that are on the fringe and the margins. This ummah is a blessed ummah. This is from our Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. The bulk of the ummah is upon good and khair. 
the bulk of Islamic scholars, they are united in the fundamentals. They're not evil people. The bulk of the ummah of all strands are good people. And if anybody says the entirety of the ummah or 99% of the ummah is misguided, then as the Prophet said, mm. whoever says my ummah is misguided, he's the most misguided of them. This is a hadith. So one sign of fundamentalism and fanaticism, one sign is to claim my way or the highway. To claim this one small strand is correct and everybody else is wrong. No, flip the script. The bulk of the ummah is upon good and khair. And the bulk of the ummah, their theologies and their methodologies are salvational, i.e. they shall get to Jannah. The differences are not going to be punish worthy. No, trivial issues between the mainstream bulk of the ummah. Choose anyone, stick to it, and respect the other mainstream. Alhamdulillah, simple as that. Imam Tahawi calls them Ahl Qibla. The people, people of who, Qibla. People who pray towards Mecca. Yeah. As long as somebody prays towards Mecca, then generally speaking, they're your brother and your sister. In fact, this is a hadith of the Prophet mm. that man salla salatana mm. wa akala dabihatana wa staqbala qiblatana fa huwa Muslim. Yeah. Right? If somebody's going to do wudu, face the qibla, prostrate towards the Kaaba, right? That person is a Muslim. That's the bulk of the ummah is upon good, alhamdulillah. You don't need to investigate. Shaykh, how do you get over guilt when you ask forgiveness from Allah, knowing you've done something terribly wrong? When that guilt is holding you back, how do you process past that? So, firstly, the question arises, is all types of guilt necessarily evil to have? Guilt is of categories. Guilt is of different types. A guilt that motivates you to compensate for a sin is the essence of Iman. And you don't want to get rid of that. That's a healthy guilt. A guilt that motivates you. Like a simple reality that you'll understand. You did something wrong to your best friend. You feel guilty. What are you going to do? You're going to make it up. Isn't that healthy for your friendship? Isn't that healthy? And inshallah, when you get married, the same thing is going to happen. You hurt your spouse, you need to make it up. And you're going to do something to make it up. That's a healthy guilt. So we need to overcome this simplistic notion of all guilt is negative. No. Some guilt is what motivates you to be a better person. Right? Now, when will guilt become negative? When it's debilitating. When it's going to stop you from doing something. When it's going to cause you to just go into withdrawal symptoms or depression or cut off from any good, that guilt is wrong. So if guilt is causing you to not do other types of good, that is a shaitanic guilt. And I'm going to be very explicit here. Let not the guilt of one sin prevent you from doing good deeds in other areas. Let not the guilt that you're feeling because of one negativity in your life, because of one area that you're falling short, let not that mini failure prevent you from success in other fields of your life. Mm. If that is happening, then that guilt is debilitating. Can you give a hypothetical? You have to be very, very cognizant of your own heart. Because shaitan... This is Ibn al-Qayyim mentions this and also Ibn Rajab in his book, um, in his book of uh, the, 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 the reality of Riyadh, he mentions this. One of the tactics of shaitan, he's going to make you feel so guilty that you see an opportunity for good and you're going to say, I'm not worthy of it. I'm not mm. going to do it. This is a tactic of shaitan. So, if you are guilty of some sins and an opportunity comes to do good, 
and you say to yourself, man, I'm, I'm, I'm not worthy of that. Maybe you're not, maybe. But then flip the script. I'm not worthy of it, but what if, what if I'll do this so that I can counterbalance my sins? What if I do this good deed so that on the day of judgment I can say to Allah, oh Allah, I have these mistakes, but I also have this good as well. Mm. Right? So don't cut off all of your avenues to Allah simply because one avenue you're falling short in. Okay? Now you have to be careful because you also don't want to become you know, um, arrogant in your guilt. You don't want that guilt to just like, oh, I, no, you have to be careful. And it's healthy to feel guilty for a sin that you have done. It's healthy. If that guilt motivates you for tawbah, motivates you to do other good, keeps you in check in other arenas, it's healthy. But if the guilt prevents you from reaching potentials in other areas, that's where shaitan is winning. It's like someone's looking up your greatest hits online right now. Our enzymes derived from animals haram. I want you guys to know the reason why we can eat hot Cheetos, the reason why is because of this man sitting next to me. <laughs> Remember the story I told you? I told you guys a story. Weren't I was at you, a gas weren't station. Weren't you in that when the guy came and asked? This was in Chicago, I think somebody Probably. asked Probably. It was definitely Chicago. 100% of Chicago. Yeah, Chicago, yeah. yeah. And the I guy think was, you were in the class when the guy I came and asked I was probably the guy he didn't want to pray behind because I <laughs> ate hot Cheetos. So uh, someone's looking up your greatest hits and they got, can you tell us some gin stories? Nope. Cannot do that. Uh, I can, but I won't. No, no, no. <laughs> you can't. You can, I can, we can send them to Epic, inshallah. You can hear them there. Uh, there's, there was one that I like. Um, we have one more time for one more, probably, uh, inshallah. But, oh, okay. What is the threshold that a person has? So back to the story of Ibrahim Aysalam. So he's having this really tough conversation with his father. And as we'll come to know as we explore this series more, there's a point where he has to make a departure from his father. And he, he makes this very emotional du'a. Uh, uh, to his father or uh, to Allah about his father and he says I'm going to pray that Allah Ta'ala forgives you and I'm going to pray that Allah guides you um, wh what is the threshold Shaykh of a person making that decision of I don't want to say cutting off because we don't believe you know لا يحل للمؤمنين أن يهجر أخاه فوق ثلاثة أيام that you know a person can't abandon somebody totally but what's the what's the, the threshold that a person can place in their own life for setting a boundary this is not a question of fiqh, it's a question of adab, of etiquette. There's no equation I can teach you. It varies from person to person, situation to situation. Your tolerance and the other person's tolerance, your toxicity, the other person's toxicity. There's an entire, you know, infinite permutations possible here. Mm. And it also varies from time to time. In other words, what happened when you were 17 should not live with you till you're 27. So, generically, the general rule is that you are not allowed to be rude to your parents. When Ibrahim's father says, I'm going to kill you, Ibrahim says, Salamun alayk, sa'astaghfirullaka rabbi. And he saves himself by walking away. He didn't just sit there and let him be killed, right? So, yeah, you got to save yourself, you got to protect yourself. But generally, the general rule, you just don't have the right to be rude to your parents. Now again, there's a lot more to be said about the etiquette. Sometimes you might have to very rarely, but generally speaking, you control your tongue. You don't lash out. And if you need to speak in a firm manner, you do so with wisdom and whatnot. If you need to cut off because being in their presence is harmful, and this is very rare, but it does happen. It is, it is possible. And um, okay, not to mention too specifically, but there might be things that have happened in your childhood that actually give you PTSD, okay? 
things that are, uh, let you understand, some of these things should not be said here, but mm. sometimes these things happen, right? And you being in the presence of a person who has done something to that level might cause you to, you know, just lose any, your control of your, legitimately so, it's literally PTSD. If that is the case, then obviously we have a different ruling here, right? So you can't just give a generic ruling for every single situation, but you try your best to repel evil with good as much as you can. You try your best. And at the very minimum, you never repel evil with evil with your parents. At the very minimum, even if you have to cut off, right? Yani, move yourself from the situation. And then also, may I say generically, never give up hope of change. Because, you know, when you're, again, 17, 18, 19, things might happen, situations might arise, words might be uttered. You need to grow up, even if your parents, believe it or not, don't grow up. You need to be Ibrahim salam here. And move on, learn to forgive if possible, and keep on trying to have good connections, good relationship. Every few, whatever, I mean, again, so much can be said here, but why would you want to cut off permanent ties if there's potential for change? And by the way, and again, because of who we are, we meet people like this all the time. All the time I meet people that because of one massive family argument or dispute and whatnot, they cut off ties. Next thing you know, the parent is gone and there can no longer be any ties formed. Deceased, you mean? Deceased, yeah. yeah. And then the person comes like, what do I do now? I'm so guilty. I never made up. I never tried again. 10 years went by. 15 years went by. I wish I didn't have that much anger for 15 years. It's too late. I mean, how long are you going to hold that much hatred Maybe they've changed. Maybe, you know, and even if they haven't, you know, power dynamics change. Again, let an older brother tell you this, right? When you're 17, you're eager to leave the nest. You don't have the power. You are 17. You're not financially in control. You're not even paying your own, you know, um, insurance for your cars. You don't have, but when you're 37 and your parents are 75, 80, the power dynamic shifts. You have to be the patient one. You have to have the sensibility, right? You need to maintain the course. And people like us, we're seeing these power dynamics. One of the most painful things you will see is that power dynamic shift. At one point in time, you're eager to leave, leave, leave. Then yani, you might not have that opportunity to be with your parents, right? You have to understand these realities. So never lose hope of change. Always try to be following the footsteps of Ibrahim salam. And bottom line, in the end of the day, it's not your parents who's going to reward you. It's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You're not doing this for their sake. You're not doing this to get anything from them. You're doing this because on the day of judgment, one of the biggest sources of your reward is going to be how you treated your parents, inshallah ta'ala. Jazakumullah khairan, Shaykh. I really appreciate your time. I, had no, I didn't know that you flew back in today. So this makes it even more, you know, subhanAllah, very, we appreciate all the time that you gave. May Allah ta'ala bless everybody here. May Allah Ta'ala make us all people who love the Qur'an, Ameen. people who look to the Qur'an for our answers, for our problems, and that we can emulate this beautiful character of our, 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 our Prophet Ibrahim salam, and that we can become our, our own friends of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with uh, our, our creator and sustainer Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We ask Allah Ta'ala to bless everybody here with ease in their life, with barakah and their health and their wealth and their family, with strong iman. We ask Allah Ta'ala to untangle any of the challenges that people have here. Ask Allah Ta'ala to purify our hearts and souls from all of the sins that we've committed Amen. and that he makes our hearts ready to receive the light of faith and that we are able to act upon the, the, the faith that he gives us. Amin, amin, ya rabbil alameen. Subhanakallahu bihamdik. Nashadu an la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. 
Jazakum Allah khairan. Uh, inshallah, for the sake of time, uh, Maghrib is, is, has come in. So we're going to be heading to the Masallah, inshallah. Um, normally, I know that we, we sit here and we do some you know, questions after and salam and you know, gupshap. But we won't have time for that today because Maghrib has come in already. So we're going to walk over to the Masallah, inshallah. And I'd ask that everybody uh, you know, allows for that to happen, inshallah. Jazakum Allah khairan. Thank you.